Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. I'm grateful that you've come out this morning here at Ivy Creek to worship with us, and I know it's hot. I, I, I looked at Ted over there earlier, and I said, you know, you and I have spent a lot more time on ball fields, a lot hotter than this. He said, yeah, but you know, occasionally you do get a breeze on a ball field. So your neighbor may need a breeze this morning, and if they do, you just reach over there and fan them a little bit and help them out. We'll get through this together. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to the book of Acts and to chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We are going to continue our study through this book that we embarked upon a few weeks ago. And, and today we actually are going to come to a passage that is an illustration of what Luke told us about in chapter 2, verse 43. We looked at that verse last week. In chapter 2, verse 43, Luke tells us that when the Jews were there and this church there that had formed in Jerusalem uh, had come together, it says that many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And he doesn't really explain all of those things there in chapter 2. He waits to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, he actually gives us an illustration of what he's talking about. And so chapter 3 really is one of those moments that, that we are able to see some really miraculous things that were occurring among the church there in Jerusalem. And today we're going to read about this sign, this wonder that was, that was done through the apostles Peter and John. And we're going to read about how a man who had been lame since his birth and, and really forced to spend his entire life as a beggar looking for handouts was instantaneously and miraculously and completely healed. But lest we just focus in on the miracle itself, I want you to also notice that in chapter 3, there's much more that, that Luke tells us than just about the miracle. In fact, I've entitled my sermon today, A Lame Excuse for a Sermon. Now, I don't want you leaving here today with that in your mind. That really was a lame excuse for a sermon. That's, I hope that that's not the case. What I hope, and I borrowed that sermon title, by the way, but what I hope that that sermon title communicates to you is that the healing of this lame man served as an excuse. It served as an opportunity. It served as a springboard for Peter to be able to preach his second sermon. He preached his first one there in chapter 2, and we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And now we're coming to this one where he preaches a second time. And, and in both cases, in both chapter 2 and in chapter 3, the focus of, Jesus, of Peter's sermon was on Jesus. Now, there's a lot of ground for us to cover this morning, so we're going to get to it. But begin reading with me there in chapter 3 and hear about this miracle that occurred outside the beautiful gate there in Jerusalem. The Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple to, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, 
walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, and all those people and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made, has, had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know yes the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all yet now brethren I know that you did it in ignorance and as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets and that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets his holy prophet, since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the people from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you for what it reveals to us about ourselves and what it reveals to us about you. And those two revelations, quite frankly, are so absolutely important for each one of us in this room. We need to see ourselves clearly. Oh, we need to see you so clearly as well. and Recognize that you're our only hope. So I pray that you would remind us of that from this passage this morning and that you would clear our hearts and minds of all the other things and distractions that could get in our way. Lord, we're thankful. We're, we're thankful even though we're going without air conditioning this morning. We're thankful for a place to meet. 
We're thankful to be among brothers and sisters. We're thankful for the fact that you have blessed us as you have in this church. Now, I pray that you would bless us even this morning as we study your word, and I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I have given you three hooks on your outline this morning, and I want you to know, I think that they cover, give you the, the understanding of this text. I only intend on covering two of them. Uh, the last one, we're going to wait and get to it next week because really the whole entire chapter of chapter four focuses on the final part, but I wanted to give it to you just so that you'd have it and you could see how the text fits together. But I'm only going to look at really the first two hooks that I'm going to give you, and the first one is simply this. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, we find an astounding sign that is portrayed for us, an astounding sign. Luke begins by telling us that Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour, or as we would say, 3 p.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, we know from back in chapter 2 that the church had been meeting daily in the temple, and so these two apostles actually just go into the prayer time that is always occurring at that hour on, on, if, with all the Jews going there to pray. And as they did, he tells us that they met this man, this, this man who was, Luke says, was lame from his mother's womb. So this is a man who had never walked, never been able to do for himself, and he was being carried to this specific spot at the entrance to the temple, what Luke identifies for us as the beautiful gate. Now, the gate was called that because of its exquisite nature. The Jewish historian Josephus says that it was made of bronze and was such excellent workmanship that it far exceeded the value of the other temple gates. Even those that were, were plated and, and were very valuable, plated in silver and gold. And as such, many have proposed that the beautiful gate was likely the most extravagant and the most prominently used entrance to the temple court. And so what we learn is, is that the, at this time of prayer, this, this high traffic time, the time of prayer at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and at this very high traffic area, this, this beautiful gate, it was there at that time and at that place that this lame man was laid in order to do exactly what he did. He begged. He, he asked others for help and for begging for alms. And what Luke tells us is that this was customary for this man. You notice that it says there that he was laid there daily. If we cheat a little bit and go to chapter 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 22, we find out that this man was over 40 years old, which means that he had come and been laid at this particular spot day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade. This was his territory, and this was where he was laying. And what that means is that many people recognized him. They knew who he was. They'd walked past him for years. They knew this man by sight. They knew him by, by what he did. And so he would have been well-known and he would have been highly recognized. But listen, his familiarity was no comfort to him. I like what Tony Marita has written. He says, this man in view here is not simply broke. He's broken. He's physically crippled. He's humiliated. He's hopeless. So there he is. He's at the beautiful gate, which in my own understanding is just a paradox, because here you have this picture of this broken man laid right there in front of the most beautiful gate to the temple. And John and, 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 and Peter, they're there. They're about to enter into the prayer service. And, and this man, he, he, he asked them for alms. No doubt he's hoping that when they walk past him, 
They'll, they'll likely drop a shekel or two onto his mat or his cup, whatever he may have had. But instead of doing that, Peter and John stopped and fixed their eyes on this man. They looked at him very intently. Now, I would suggest that that's just the opposite of what happened most of the time. I, I'm going to be honest and just, I, I debated on whether to say it, but I'm going to say it. You know, most of the time when I walk into one of those big box stores and then they have somebody out front that's trying to sell you something before you actually get into the big box store to buy what you went, came there to do, but they want to sell you something else. You know what I do? I keep my head down. I try not to make eye contact and I just keep going. I would suggest to you that that's what many people did when they passed this beggar who laid there. They kept their head down. They wouldn't look, no, don't make eye contact with him. Ignore him, because if you ignore him, then he doesn't exist. But that's not what happened with John and with Peter that day. They stopped. They looked at him. They, they looked intently at him. And then they said this to him, look at us. Now, I find that interesting as well. The man's looking for something. He's had his hand out. He's asking for alms. But evidently, he had his head down. He was not looking at them. I think that just represents the humiliation of what he went through in his life. I think it represents the fact that he realized he had no, he had no way of being able to identify with them in any other way except just to ask them for what they could do for him. And it was humiliating enough that he wouldn't even lift his eyes to look at them. But Peter and John said, look at us. And he did. And when he looked at them, he looked at them expecting to receive something from them, Luke says. And then Peter makes that statement that likely all of us have been familiar with. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. And then he says to them, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now I believe that initially, initially, for just a split second, silver and gold have I none. I bet there was just an element of disappointment in that man's face. Not even a shekel. You got nothing for me? But here's what I would say to you. I believe that disappointment dissipated very quickly because Peter reaches down, grabs him by his right hand, and Luke says, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. In fact, so instantaneous, so full, so comprehensive was this man's healing that he says he leaped up and he stood and walked. And in, listen to the number, listen to the verbs that Luke says here. Leaping up, he stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Luke is reiterating for us over and over and over again that this man was doing things that he had never done before. 32 years ago, when I was in the Navy, I was 20 years old, I had, I had broken and messed up my foot earlier in life, and, and, and my ankle was, was, was in pretty bad shape, and, and, and I damaged it again doing some stuff when I was in the service, and so they went and did x-rays on it and determined that they were going to have to do surgery on me, and what they did effectively was they took some bone from my right hip, they grafted it into the top bones on the top part of my ankle, they put us a plate with six screws to hold it all in place and gave me about a year and a half for all of that to fuse together into one solid joint. For the first six months after that surgery, I was on crutches with no weight bearing whatsoever on my right ankle. So I walked everywhere I walked on crutches. 
Following that first six-month period, they did put me in a walking boot, but I still had to be on crutches. They didn't want me to walk on it constantly, so I had that period of time. And then following that, when they finally took the casts off, you can imagine my calf muscle was just about this big. So we had to go through physical therapy, and you had to learn how to get that muscle built back, and then you had to learn how to get the, the mobility back in your ankle. And finally, after about a year, I was able to do away with the crutches. That gives me some perspective on this miracle. Because this man is over 40 years old. He had never stood. Can you imagine the atrophy of his muscles? Can you imagine the fact that he had no ability whatsoever on his own to stand and to walk? But when, 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 when the power of Christ healed him, he was instantly whole. It didn't take him a year. He needed no crutches. There was no added aid that was there for him. He was instantly, completely, totally healed. That's a reason to leap and to jump and to walk and to praise and to do all that. I don't think there's anything outside of the realm for us to understand why this man reacted and responded the way that he did. And don't miss this part. Notice, notice where, notice where Luke tells us in verse 8 that he went first. He went with Peter and John into the temple. You know where this man had never been before? In the temple. Why? Because he was lame. He was broken. He was, he was, you weren't allowed into those courts when you were in that situation. He couldn't have gone there because he, he was a, a blemished man. But now he could because he'd been healed. And as he did, he jumped and he danced and he leaped and he shouted for joy and he praised the name of Jesus. And, 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 and Luke provides us with this fitting report in verses 9 and 10. Notice it again. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew, 40 plus years of laying there, they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as I said, what Luke has provided us with is an astounding sign performed by the apostles here in Jerusalem. And truthfully, I'd love to know more about it. I'd like to, you know, if I were writing a story, I'd have given a lot more details about a lot of things. I'd have, there's a lot of questions that roll through my mind that I would have wanted to know. Um, but Luke doesn't provide us with that. He doesn't dwell on those details. In fact, let me point out that Luke has organized the material of chapter 3 really the same way that he organized the, the material of chapter 2. Here in chapter 3, the, he, he tells about this really astounding miracle, but you notice he, on, he tells everything that occurred in 10 verses, just 10. But then we see that Peter comes up and preaches a sermon in which he explains the miracle and all of the meaning behind it and the emphasis of how it ought to change lives. He spends 16 verses telling about the sermon. Ten verses about the miracle, 16 verses about the sermon. It's the same thing that he did in chapter 2. In chapter 2, you have this grand, glorious miracle of the Holy Spirit coming down and, and resting upon people, and, and you see all these exquisite signs that occurred, the signs of sound and, and, and sight and, and people speaking in tongues. Peter spends 13 verses telling about that. But then he spends the subsequent 27 verses giving us the elements of the sermon that Peter preached that explained the miracle and told us the significance behind it. In both chapters, we find, I believe, an intentionally repeated pattern of how Luke organizes the information 
in these two chapters. And what that pattern communicates to us is that while the miraculous is, is, is important, it's astounding all that occurs. The message and the meaning behind the miracles is even more important. You and I would do well to not only note that here in chapter 3, but to remember it as we continue studying this book of Acts. In fact, I liked how one preacher put it. He says, it's easy to be distracted by the miraculous in Acts. However, in every instance of a miracle occurring, the apostles point away from themselves and the miracle that was performed. Instead, they used the miracle to point people to Jesus. And they clearly identified Jesus as the one who performs the miracle, and they urged those who witnessed it to put their trust in him. I would say it this way. The main point is not the astounding sign itself. It is what the astounding sign actually signifies. And that's what Luke turns our attention to as we come to the next point on your outline. You see, we move from the astounding sign to what Peter began to preach. And Peter began to preach an accusatory sermon. An accusatory sermon. That's the next, that's the next hook there on your outline. And according to verse 11, the man's leaping and praising God and grabbing on to Peter and to John created quite a commotion there in the temple courts. And, and they were gathered there in the area of Solomon's porch, which was on the eastern side of the temple. And, and Luke makes the point of saying that everyone looking on was greatly amazed, or as the ESV puts it, they were utterly astounded by what they had seen. And Peter turns, and he looks at all these people staring at them and, 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 and says, what y'all looking at? Why y'all staring at us? He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? We're not the miracle workers here. Why are you staring at us? Rather, in verse 13, Peter says that the responsible party for this miracle that had occurred is none other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. But what's interesting to me is how Peter words what he says next. He says, notice, uh, he says, he doesn't say God healed this man. Did you notice that? That's not what he says. He said, God glorified his servant, Jesus. In other words, for Peter, his description of this miraculous thing that just occurred was not that the man got healed. The way he described it was that God, through this healing, glorified his servant Jesus. This miracle is all about Jesus. If we think this miracle is about this man, we miss the point. The miracle is about Jesus and the power of him being able to accomplish something that no one else could accomplish. And from there, I want you to know, Peter began, as we might say in our common vernacular, Peter began to shuck the corn. He set them up from this point, and he's fixing to lay them down. Notice the accusations that Peter levels at those who gathered and stared at him. He tells him, look, you delivered Jesus up. You denied him before Pilate. You denied the Holy One and the just. You asked for the release of a murderer so that you might kill the prince of life. Those are some serious accusations. But then notice that also that Peter tells these Jews that what they had done, well, that was not the end of the story. That's what they wanted to do. Peter lets them know that's not what occurred, though. Effectively, he says to the crowd, look, you condemned and then you crucified 
Jesus Christ, God's divine son. It was your desire to defeat him. In fact, I want you to notice there, there's a number of titles given to Christ. I just want to focus in on the one in verse 15. He says, you killed the prince of life. Depending on the version that you're reading from this morning, that word could also be the author of life or the originator of life. In other words, he says, the very creator of life, you killed. Then Peter reminds them that God has himself overruled what they attempted to do by raising Jesus from the dead. I love what Warren Wiersbe has written. He says, Calvary may have been man's last word, but the empty tomb was God's last word. Now, it's that issue. Hold on to it. We're not going to get to it this week. Hold on to it, though. That's the issue. That's the issue that ends up creating the whole problem that we begin to see in chapter 4. It is Peter's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that started the persecution of the church. Hang on to that. Come back next week. So to summarize the first part of Peter's message, the miracle of this healed beggar, he says it's not something that we did, something, not something we could take credit for, but rather it's proof that Jesus is alive and that he has been glorified by his Father. And as a result, if ever a people were guilty, it was the people to whom Peter preached and witnessed to that day in the temple. They were guilty of killing their own Messiah. Now, it was only after having stated all that that Peter finally addressed the question that was on everybody's mind, and, and that was how this lame beggar was healed. Peter goes on to answer that question down in verse 16. He says, and in his name, that is the name of Jesus, God's servant, the holy one, the just one, the prince of life, in his name and through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. I'm going to spare you some of this, but the Greek text there is just, it's complex. It's very difficult to get... The complexity of it, it leads to some very clunky English translations. That was the New King James I just read for you. The ESV, if you've got it, reads this way. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I think that's actually a little bit better. But in this particular instance, and I don't always say this, but in this particular instance, I think the NIV actually helps us really understand it, because the NIV actually splits it instead of one sentence, the way that the Greek is in the original, it splits it into two, because and then it helps us understand a little more of what I think Peter is saying. Listen to what the NIV does. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all see. Ultimately, let me just say this we come to recognize what Peter is saying, which is that the power for this man's healing came from Jesus. We can't, you, you can't miss any of that. It came from Jesus. He was the author. He was the one from whom the power came. And it came through faith in his name. The only question that remains is whose faith? Was it the apostle's faith? Or was it the man's faith? And, and as you might imagine, there's a lot of debate back and forth about this particular verse and trying to figure that out. Let me just tell you, the Greek is ambiguous about it. It doesn't give us any conclusive argument one way or the other. 
It is my personal opinion that in this particular case, and that's the key word, the particular case, I believe Peter is referring to the faith that he and John had in reaching down and bringing him up, that it was the faith of their, their faith in what Christ was able to do. You'll notice the man was asking for alms. Peter reached down and raised him up to life again. So that's the way. But now there are others that would have other thoughts about that. Here's what I want you to know. We don't need to get hung up on that detail because Peter doesn't get hung up on that detail. And in fact, he clarifies it all as he continues to preach his sermon. So rather than us tripping up over it, let's just continue and hear what Peter winds up saying. Because in fact, what he goes on to do, he says that in verse 17, that all of those people who gathered around, he leveled some pretty heavy charges at them in the first part of his sermon, and he highlighted their guilt, and he highlighted their sin. And he did this so that they would be able to see their need. You realize sometimes why people don't really see that they, they need Christ? is because they've never been shown how much they need Him. They don't recognize just where they are in their relationship with Him. They don't recognize how damaged that relationship actually is. But I want you to notice, Peter says, everything that you did to Jesus, I know you did it out of ignorance. In fact, Jesus Himself even said the same thing when He hung on the cross. You remember what Jesus said Luke records it there in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He says, from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was done out of ignorance. Listen, even so, ignorance is not an excuse. It did not give them any relief from the guilt that was theirs to bear. And furthermore, notice this, the Jews who valued their Old Testament scriptures, well, they should have been able, of all people, to see how everything written in those scriptures was fulfilled in Christ. In fact, Peter even says there in verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. As such, this group of people, they remained guilty because of what they had done. They were guilty. And no doubt, I want you to know right here, Peter is preaching with boldness, and he is preaching with authority. He is preaching con conviction. The Holy Spirit's fulfilling exactly what Jesus had said would happen. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, power had come upon him when he became a witness to Christ in all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. That power is resting upon Peter here, and he's preaching with conviction. But then this just hit me this week as I studied this passage. It just came to me as Peter has just accused his brethren that were standing there looking at him. He's just accused them of denying Christ. He had denied the Holy One, he says. And, and, and he says, you, you denied him in the presence of Pilate and you denied the Holy One and the just one. And it struck me that Peter was one who knew a thing or two or three about denying Jesus. In fact, it had only been just a little over a couple of months earlier that Peter had denied Christ three times on the night that Jesus was arrested before he was crucified. And therefore, brothers and sisters, I do not believe that when Peter preached with boldness and power here, that he did so with anger and malice in his heart for his fellow Jews. Rather, I believe he preached with power and boldness because he knew of all people what it meant to be guilty. 
of all people standing there in that temple court, he knew what it was like to to stand under the conviction and the condemnation of God. He was a condemned man preaching to condemned men. And Peter knew that the only hope that condemned men, women, boys, and girls have is to fall upon their face before a holy and righteous God and repent. In fact, that is exactly what he goes on to say in verse 19. He says, repent and be converted. The ESV says, repent, therefore, and turn back. The NIV says, repent and turn to God. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but it's important to understand what repentance is and what it's not. Oftentimes, repentance gets confused with just being sorry for what you've done. And let me say to you, I believe that godly sorrow over your sin accompanies repentance, but those two are not the same thing. It is, it is in fact, very easy to feel sorry for what you have done, and yet that sorrow not lead to repentance. I give you one example. Judas. Judas experienced godly sorrow over what he did to Christ, and it led him to suicide, not to repentance. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you that repentance is something that it is, it is faith. It is the turning to God in faith. It is a change of mind and a change of heart about God and about what He has done. And yes, it produces sorrow in our hearts because we recognize that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. But it is more than that. It is turning our faces to Him in complete and total humility and saying, I want to be made right with you and I can't do it on my own. It's requiring that you do something for me. That's what faith and repentance are. I like the way that the Puritan writer Thomas Watson described those things as being together. They, are, they go together. Some have said they go together like peas and cornbread. Maybe that's the case, but I like what Thomas Watson says better. He says these things go together like two wings of a bird whereby we fly to heaven. This is what Peter preaches to this gathered crowd. Repent and turn to God in faith. And what could they rightly expect in return from that repentance? Well, notice this. There are three R's I didn't put them there for you. You write them down, enjoy it. But here's what they are. The first thing is, is that you would be from that repentance that you would experience the, the, the complete total washing away, the obliteration of your sins. To, be, to, to repent means that, that when that, that forgiveness comes, that, that the, all those things will be wiped out. I love, you know what a whiteboard looks like? And when you get up there and you write on the whiteboard and just imagine you're on the whiteboard and every sin you have ever committed is written there and lined out. In great detail. And God in his great grace comes because of what Christ has done. And he wipes that just as clean as it could be. Listen, repentance brings about that kind of slate cleaning. It's the same word that he uses there that he uses in Revelation 7 verse 17 that describes God wiping away the tears from our eyes. Listen, when we repent and we turn to God in faith, He wipes our slate clean. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 14 that the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands has been canceled. It's been set aside because it was nailed to the cross. How amazing is that? How amazing. Think about it. God doesn't demand from us some great work by where we can we can pay down the debt that we owe him. The penalty is too great for that. We could never do it. Rather, 
What the Lord requires is that we simply trust in him as the only one who can remove our sins. And he has already finished that work and he's accomplished it by his grace. That's what Peter urges them to do. Receive the grace and the forgiveness from their sins. Even the very worst of sins because they were the ones who had put to death the author of life. He also tells them in verse 19 that by repenting and turning to God that they will experience times of refreshing. They will find rest. They will find respite. They will find relief. Jesus himself says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then finally, in verses 20 and 21, Peter points to the hope that comes through repentance, the hope of Christ restoring all things. Romans chapter 8 speaks of the day in which our sufferings and our groanings will ultimately give way to our, to our, our glory. And that is what's being, what, what being reconciled to Christ brings for us. Christ gives us hope of glory to come. And that is the hope that Peter offers this crowd that was gathered with him that day. I was talking to a friend the other day, and um, we had gone to high school together. And we, were both, we were both talking about being on the downhill side of life a little bit, and uh, we were both laughing and wondering when it was. We didn't know exactly, but we just wondered, when do you think we hit our peak? I told him I thought I hit mine a lot later than he did. But you know, uh, you know what the hope of the gospel tells us? The hope of the gospel tells us that we who are Christians, we have not yet nor will we in this life ever hit our peak. The hope of glory is something that awaits us. We, we have a home in heaven that God has prepared for us, especially for us. And when we get there, we will experience all of the beauty and all the joy and all the glory that he has prepared for his children, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. You and I have yet to hit our peak. But if in Christ we trust in him, one day we will be there and it will never go down. There will never be a downhill slide. That is what the Bible promises and that's what Peter talks about here. And then finally he talks about Moses and the prophet Samuel and the things that Abraham was told by God and I'm going to let you go back and read all of those passages in the Old Testament for yourself, but effectively what he says is, is that the prophet who is like Moses is none other than Jesus Christ, and he's come. And if we do not listen to him, the judgment will come upon us just as it would have come upon them at that time. And then he says, but in Jesus, he is the seed through whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. What an awesome message Peter preached that day. And then notice, according to the final words of of, of, we read of our text in verse 4 of chapter 4 that the church grew to about 5,000 that day. Now, last week we noticed that it had grown over 3,000. That means that over 2,000 more souls came to know the Lord and came to be a part of the church as a result of this sermon that pre Peter preached. So my alliteration got away from me here, but Peter's accusatory ser uh, sermon led to some amazing salvations. You can write that down. It's free. Notice the last hook, though. The last hook, and I'm only going to give it to you. Because of this sermon and because of the resurrection for which he preached, you will see that in chapter 4, there's an adversarial showdown. An adversarial showdown. That's really all of chapter 4. We'll come to it next time. But for today, let me summarize and conclude this way. This passage has presented us with a picture of a man who was lame from birth. He's broken. He's hopeless. He's helpless. He's begging. He's bankrupt. He's totally 
unable to help himself. Brothers and sisters, that is a perfect, apt picture of every single one of us apart from Christ. We were born in our sin, helplessly, hopelessly lost. We could be laid at the most beautiful gate and entrance to the temple of God, but we could never go in it because of our sin. And I want you to know, just as this man experienced complete and total instantaneous healing, so is that same salvation offered to each one of us. In fact, I would say this, that what happened to this man physically is available to happen to you spiritually. You see, the message that Peter preached pointed to Jesus, and it reminds each of us that we too need to be saved. We too need to be healed, just as this man was healed. And when we turn to Christ in repentance and in faith, God miraculously wipes our slate clean, and he refreshes our hearts, and he promises us that the best is yet to come. Listen, if that's your testimony today, then you and I ought to be like this lame man who was given his his new healing. There ought to be some jumping. There ought to be some leaping. There ought to be some praising God. And there ought not to be any of this, well, I'm too dignified for that. This man was not too dignified to raise both of his hands and say, praise God, I'm saved. And that ought to be the way that we respond to that too. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence and I will close because I know you're hot. I am too. I'm sweating just like crazy. My sermon in the sentence this morning is this, because Jesus brings complete healing to those who repent and turn to him in faith. Broken, broken, hopeless, and spiritually lame sinners like you and me. We have every reason, every reason to leap for joy and to praise God. Give the Lord praise. Is that your attitude today? Because it ought to be. Does your heart overflow with joy and praise of the salvation that is yours through Christ? If not, may I just suggest this to you? Maybe you have allowed sin to come into your life. Unconfessed, unrepented of sin that is robbing you of your peace. If so, then won't you confess that sin to the one who died to wipe your slate clean? Won't you repent of that sin and change your mind about it and return to Jesus? Maybe, maybe you need to do that for the first time. Perhaps today is the day that you need to fall before Christ, the Holy One, the Just One, the Prince of Life, and surrender yourself to Him, acknowledging your sin and guilt and placing your faith in Him. Listen, if you do not have this peace in your heart, I want you to know you do not have to go through your life bearing the guilt and despair that is yours. You do not have to think that your peak has already come and gone. Repent and turn in faith to Christ. And just like this man, formerly lame, formerly broken, you can be saved. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we do thank you for this day. and We do thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, even for this hot room in which we exist together today and all of our 98.6s are making it even hotter than that. 
Lord, even in the midst of this, in which we're distracted by all of that, we have come face to face with the marvelous grace and the forgiving nature of Jesus Christ who came to die for us and rose again. And Lord, what what he did for this lame man, he has done for so many of us spiritually in this room and promises to do to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. My prayer today is that you would lift up the Savior so that we might see him clearly and that your Holy Spirit might work in our hearts to bring about conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.